you just never know how people are living and what their actual life looks like. And the idea or the image of somebody walking around dressed up, looking fantastic and lead somebody to feel like they are not living as well because they're seeing somebody else who looks, right? The image looks like they are quote unquote living better. I think that noise really does weigh people down in terms of how they look at themselves and impact self-esteem where your money has nothing to do with your self-esteem. If you can afford to um, dress in the designer things and that makes you feel good and great, you should. But if you cannot afford to dress that way or wear designer things, why are we doing it? Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F word. Welcome back to the most hated F word podcast. I hope you are having a fantastic week and I hope you enjoyed this week's episode with our guest, Asia Evans. Before we get into this conversation, I have a couple asks. Number one is if you can kindly take two minutes out of your day and head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review, that would be fantastic. And second, there is an upcoming conference with the Financial Therapy Association. The Financial Therapy Association is a wonderful organization that looks at how and why we think and feel and communicate, and most importantly, well, maybe not most importantly, but importantly, why we behave the way we do around money. The aim is to help us think differently with money and to improve our overall well-being through evidence-based practices and interventions. It's a fabulous organization with very, very insightful people. So there's a conference coming up in October in Denver, Colorado, and myself and many, many other people will be going to this conference. And this year's theme is called Moving Forward, Redefine Connections for a Resilient Future. The dates are October 5th to 8th, like I said, in Denver, Colorado, it will be a fantastic boutique intimate conference with three fantastic keynote speakers, Elaine King, Todd Cashton, and Antonio Harrison. All have unique and incredibly impactful conversations to have with us, the attendees. And there will also be about 20 to 30 other presentations throughout the three-day conference. I highly recommend you head over to financialtherapyassociation.org to get yourself a ticket. And now, on to the show with financial therapist, Asia Evans. I am delighted to have Asia Evans on the podcast. Who is Asia? Well, she's a board-certified therapist, speaker, and writer specializing in financial therapy. With over a decade of experience in mental health, 
Asia's expertise sits at the intersection of feelings and all things money. As an active contributor to the dialogue around financial well-being, she has a blog, All the Thing, All of the Feels, and a reoccurring column, Finance and Focus with Square Banking. Her advice has been quoted in Business Insider, Bloomberg, The Washington Post, Nerd Wallet, and among other publications. She is a woman on a mission to engage people living their best lives while attuning to their thoughts, feelings, and beliefs around money. Asia, welcome to the show. Hi, happy to be here. That last sentence, attuning to their thoughts, feelings, and behaviors around money, I felt it in my chest because I think for 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 far too long, I just distracted myself in, from feeling those things. So I'm looking forward to diving into them. But first, I thought we would start with a little bit about you and New York City. We were just talking about New York City. You're having some wild temperature swings. New York City is one of those cities as a visitor that I, I, I enjoy. I actually proposed to my wife there, saw Lady Gaga, and not most importantly, but close, I saw Bruce Springsteen live on broad, or Broadway. Awesome. And, and anyone who's traveled to New York City can feel that lure. I've, there's so many cuisines, these friendly family restaurants from around the world. I read a stat that there's like 800 languages spoken in New York City, the most in the world, which I didn't know there was 800 languages, but uh, apparently according to this source. So it's a city that has this attraction to pull you in. And I think there's so many people who have this desire to get to New York City to experience the larger in life New York City. But I often hear that once we get there, for a longer period than a holiday. Suddenly, it seems like New York City is jumping into your wallet and taking all the money that we have. <laughs> New York City is an expensive city. And I think let's start there because you do a lot of work around money. There's this idea, this fantasy almost of going to New York City, but we often don't think about the cost. So let's start with you. What drew you to the big city? And what have you learned, if anything at all, about your relationship with money that may have surprised you after moving to New York City? I love that you asked this question because it so directly ties to my interest in personal finance and how I came to this work. So this is a beautiful thing that I don't even know if you knew you were doing it, but it's fantastic. Also, my parents are from New York City. So I grew up coming to New York very frequently. So going into Manhattan, going into Brooklyn, where my extended family lived, going to Queens. So it was a very normal thing for me to, because I, I was born and raised in upstate New York, but it was a normal thing for me to come down to the city and hang out for a weekend, whatnot, when I was younger. So when you're young, you don't really realize the cost of things and what that means when you're going so frequently or how you're spending your time when you're in New York City. And you're right, it can get very, very expensive. There are beautiful ways to enjoy the city that are free or inexpensive, but just as much as you can enjoy that, you can go the complete opposite end of the spectrum and spend a lot, a lot of money <laughs> very, very quickly. So when I graduated from grad school, I spent some time back at home upstate and then decided that it was time for me to move back to New York City. That's where I had gone to college outside of New York in Westchester and all of my friends lived in the city and I was just ready to come back. So when I was able to come back, I got what I defined as like a really cool big job. I had been in the industry already for probably about four years or so, four or five years. But when I moved to New York, it felt 
like I had a huge salary. I was making more money than ever before. And I really was like, great, I can live my quote unquote adult life in New York and it's going to be great. And I moved and I was making it rain with my money. New York was in my wallet, my bank account, like hanging out. And I really just was living my best life over my budget. I had no budget, wasn't even thinking about it. I just didn't understand why it felt like I didn't have money. (laughs) And it was because I was going out. I was sometimes sending out my laundry. I had a car payment that I was still making. I brought my car to New York City, which is not typical, but I wasn't really ready to part with it. And I was in a long distance relationship at the time. So it made sense for me to keep my car on top of a high rent, on top of everything else. And I just was so confused why I wasn't saving more money and putting myself in a better situation that I deemed necessary then. And then during a holiday, I met with a cousin. He started talking about personal finance and just what it would look like. And I was so intrigued and started really diving in once I got home. So I remember being in my apartment. It was a lovely, beautiful apartment with my best friend and consuming as many articles and content that I could find at the time about personal finance, debt-free community, retirement, just pretty much everything that I could get my hands on about personal finance. And that led me in my work to start feeling more comfortable talking about money and having those discussions when it came up with my clients. Traditionally, therapists aren't trained in grad school to have those conversations about money and kind of what might be the underlining pins of your beliefs about money and your feelings about money. So when I was comfortable, because in my personal life, I had just, I was pretty knowledgeable and I'm not an expert, but felt comfortable just like, Hey, yeah, we can make room for you to talk about your money and the stress that comes up with your money. From there, I just kind of fell in love with being able to marry and merge two things that I was really passionate about that being mental health and feelings and emotions as well with money and personal finance and how to make sure that people felt a little bit more comfortable and seen because we've all had that experience when you're at a group dinner and you're waiting for the check and you're like, Oh my God, how much money did I spend? I don't want to be the one who's like, Hey, can I have my own check please? Cause I, I didn't spend that much money, but you know, it can get really uncomfortable. And I, I realized that people were not talking about it. So Long story short, New York definitely played a role <laughs> in bringing me to this place. I appreciate that answer. And I, I have a question that my curiosity is burning through, but I feel like I could do a whole podcast on the check dilemma. <laughs> do I ask for my own check? I, I didn't drink anything expensive. Or, it's quite the, right. quite the fascinating. You got that laughter. <laughs> yeah, it's like, whoa, I just got macaroni. I'm going to park that one though. But that that's something that often comes up with me. In our intro, or your intro, we talked about engage while attuning to our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. That spoke out to me because for a long time, I distracted myself from feeling my feelings, maybe because I didn't want to, still don't know 100% why. And I feel like if I was in New York City, it would be the ultimate distraction. And so as you talk about your story, I hear you explaining all these distractions. We're feeling these dopamine rushes. We're feeling good, but yet we're outliving our bank accounts. I mean, this happens often. I want to draw a parallel between that poster behind you, which I believe when I put the order words in order, it says pause. There must be a significance to the word pause for you because it's on your wall. How does pausing help us 
to feel that attunement of our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors around money? I think in general for a mental health professional and at the very least for me, pausing before we react, pausing before we take the next step is is such an important thing to just take a beat or a minute to recognize what's going on for you. This could come up in any aspect of your life, right? So if, yes, in New York City, you could be completely distracted by things. I could go on and on about what came up for a lot of my clients when people were in lockdown or not going into work and how they didn't have the distractions and then how they were able to see themselves. But in general, we are not taking a pause as frequently as I think we could to recognize what's happening with ourselves. Where are we at? What are we feeling? What are we going through? Whether that is physiologically, like in our body, or if that's just emotionally. So for me, taking that pause is so important to attune to what's going on for you to then make sure that you you know why you're taking the next step. You know what's coming, where your next behavior, where your next step is coming from for you internally. So what, like I said, it could be physically or emotionally, just making sure you recognize, oh, I'm a little upset right now. And it might be because of this. Let me make sure that I attune to that in a way that is not going to put me in a position I don't want to be in after my actions type of thing. So taking a beat or a pause to just recognize where am I at right now? How do I feel? Is this something that is positive for me or not? So pause is probably one of my first top tips, like pause, take a break, take a minute, take a breath to just recognize like what's going on for me right now. I feel like as our industry, the financial system, we so much focus on this data collection, new information, but we don't talk about these, these behaviors of that re- reacting to stimulus. I mean, Viktor Frankl has always talked about that there's that space between stimulus and response, and that's where the growth and freedom lies. I feel like the work individuals like yourselves, mental health practitioners or other individuals who go on in the inner side of money have this tool of helping people pause to feel those feelings that can actually help with sustainable change or behavior modification. So I appreciate whenever I get to talk to people with a maybe more so mental health background, because really finance is just understanding our human behaviors. And we no wonder we don't, or I don't know, I feel like it's no wonder a relationship with money on average, at least in Canada, the statistics I see is we're stressed, overwhelmed with money is because I feel like we approach it in uh, maybe a manner that could be very judgmental and shame inducing at some point. So. Yeah. And it just, it can be really reactionary Mm -hmm. to your point. And and sometimes that leads people down the road of feeling really bad. I get why it might've felt like for a long time, money is just about the numbers, but it's not. It definitely is not. I guess I want to transition to this idea of stories because we're humans, we're story-making machines. And to your point there, money is, you know, not just about the numbers. In a way, these are all constructed stories in our own minds. And I feel like the more I construct one around, it's not just numbers, the more satisfied I feel. But these stories are so, so strong. I mean, we see through narrative psychology just how influential stories have been in our human evolution as human beings. In fact, narrative psychologists call us the storytelling animal. And they suggest that we're hardwired for stories. And so we could see how impactful stories are. 
And when we don't question the origin of our stories or don't have the curiosity to investigate them, sometimes they could be maybe leading us down the wrong road. So growing up, do you mind sharing a bit about the story you were telling yourself in and around money? To be honest with you, it's so interesting because a lot of the narrative that I have, and I love narrative therapy, I just think it's so important because of exactly what you're saying. We can incorporate those beliefs about ourselves so quickly. And in my house, when I was growing up, money wasn't necessarily talked about. I knew my my mom was really good at money. I knew that she saved money. She was very comfortable living within her means. I knew my dad enjoyed spending money and together, you know, they made it work and it was okay. And I lived a very privileged and comfortable life, which I'm grateful for. But I recognize, and this is very similar for a lot of people who are growing up in black communities, is that you're not really taught why you're doing things, why it's really important. It's just kind of like, oh, you should do it this way. So I knew it was important to save, but I didn't necessarily know why it was really important. And when you're younger, that instant gratification is really strong (laughs) and it feels really important. So those are kind of some of the lessons I had to learn later on in life that, oh, I feel really good when my savings can cover my life if something was happen. I feel really good not having to worry about an outstanding bill because I paid it right away, that sort of thing. But I also want to say that one narrative that is so strong in the household that I grew up in, which really came from my mom, is that I felt like I could always do something. I never felt like it couldn't be me. I really just was raised with this level of I can try and we'll see what happens if I try. And there shouldn't be anything that's going to stop me from at least trying. And I think that is something that really carries me through now. And I appreciate so much more as an adult because it really impacted how I looked at myself, how I looked at my abilities. And and that can carry you through from work, personal life, traveling, money, relationships, just across the board. If you inherently believe that you can try and it might work out. So, What a gift that your mother was able to provide you with that, uh, I guess, that feeling of self-agency. Yeah, and you don't appreciate it when you're younger. It's just like, oh, well, you know, I'm trying, but like, whatever. (laughs) It doesn't seem as so important. And it really does tie back to how you feel about yourself and your self-esteem and what you're capable of. Well, as a father of two, I feel like that's a big gift I need to work on is helping them feel like they can. Me too. I have two young ones too. Yeah. And I'm like, how do I make sure I instill this? I don't know how she did it, but I'm like, mom, write a book, tell all of us because we all need to yeah. figure it out. I, I read a piece of yours and I believe the title had an in and around narrative about money stories. And this actually makes me think about that right now. And when I observe the financial systems that were created, kind of to your point that you just talked about within different communities, such as the black community, there's these systems, these financial systems that were created that sometimes aren't fair, sometimes leave people out. In the article that I read, I heard you saying that you work with a lot of people of color and who perhaps feel this exclusion. And then I'm thinking about your mom's gift about you can despite, you know, the the challenges that are around having this self-belief. With your work for individuals who might be challenged by the systems that, that exist today, who are trying to, in your words from that article, be first-time wealth builders, generational wealth builders, what have you observed the role of self-esteem plays as they navigate these money stories? 
It's huge. So the thing about communities of color are a lot of times they are intergenerational. So it's not just kind of like your current generation. It might be your current generation, the generation before you, if you have children, that generation. So you might have multiple generations in one household or in a very close community together. And when you are a first time generation, a first generation wealth builder, it may feel like you are doing something that is very different than everybody else. And that can feel very uncomfortable. You might be living in a way that other people hadn't lived before, being able to do things that maybe your parents or your grandparents weren't able to do. And although that is amazing and it's a privilege and a gift it can also feel really uncomfortable to people and make them question kind of if they are the same person if they remember where they came from if they are trying to be a new person and the answer to that for a lot of people is no but it also requires them to feel confident and who they are, where they came from, as well as where they're going. So self-esteem is definitely going to play a part in recognizing that you are not a bad person if you are making more money than your parents made. You are not doing your community a disservice if you choose to live somewhere else, right? You can still come back into that community that you grew up in and pour in in a way that feels good. But it's so complex when we start talking about the generations changing what it looks like and really diving into what it means when somebody's doing something differently. And especially if you're the first person who's doing it, that can feel really difficult because there is a sense of obligation to your family, to your community and holding both of those at the same time can be really difficult. Yeah. I mean, earlier mentioned about stories from an evolutionary perspective helped us evolve, but this idea of Going beyond your tribe in our ancestors' days was something that was looked poorly upon. And Dr. Brad Klontz, he he talks about how we have financial comfort zones. And these are our financial, as he calls, neighborhoods that due to our birth or where we were born, our family, the generations, as you said, we feel part of those. And when we leave those comfort zones, then it feels, to your point, uncomfortable. So when you work with individuals, as, as people try to aspire to leave the comfort zone, but to go on what you said, hold both of those, those things, moving beyond, but also respecting where you came from. What do you say to your clients or how do, how do they hold these two maybe opposing positions? Yeah, so I, I work a lot with people who are in tech and that has been an area of tremendous growth, as we know. And for a lot of people and the clients I see, like I said, are majority of color, they're making, like I said, more money than their parents were making. And that is beautiful. And they're dealing with potential options that come with their positions and potential RFUs or stocks and, and benefits or large bonuses. So really taking a minute to just allow them to be like, hey, let's celebrate that you're doing so well. That is a huge thing. A lot of times we forget to celebrate and just be like, hey, like you made it. Like this is what you were working hard for. That's amazing. That's a beautiful thing. Even though it comes with a little strife and uncomfortability, it is something to be celebrated. So one, celebrating. And then two, recognizing, like I said, that you can hold two emotions at the same time. Equally one of, I'm so thrilled that I'm making this money and I can give back. I might be able to help my parents or grandparents with something financially. I might be able to 
save for my future kids and their future. I might be able to buy a house in a place that my family never thought we would be able to buy a house or or just continue to like, hey, I want to take them on a great vacation. They don't need any help financially, but I want to take them on a vacation or do something really nice for them. And I'm able to do that. So just taking a minute to recognize one, having more money isn't a bad thing, but we have to make sure that we're doing positive things with it and that you feel good about it. And to your point about Dr. Krantz and kind of the work that he's talked about, it is really complicated to, to move outside of your like quote unquote neighborhood as he would describe it. And, and the perception that of people might have about you when you decide to move or do something different or be the first to kind of dabble in something that other people haven't done. And that is really, really difficult for people feeling like they may have betrayed who they are or their families. There can be a lot of shame attached. There is a lot of guilt attached when it, it, it is cause for celebration and figuring out how to balance your priorities, your expectations that your families may have for you and your own beliefs and values is complicated, but taking a minute, a pause, if you will, <laughs> to just figure out, hey, where are my financial priorities and what do I want to do and how do I make a plan to make sure that I'm navigating them as best as I can and I cannot stress enough when it comes to relationships, communication. It may be hard, it may be awkward, but it's going to be really important for you to communicate where you're coming from, what your boundaries may be, and where you want all of you to go because it's not a bad thing to be able to share your earnings and and change some things for your family. Thank you for that. When you said it, I can't remember exactly how you said, but we're able to hold two emotions at once, opposing emotions. I actually felt myself feel good. I'm like, oh, okay, it's okay. (laughs) I think often (laughs) we feel like that's not possible. It's one or the other. And thank you for sharing that, this perspective of moving our, uh, from this quote, financial neighborhood. And I think for, for many people like myself, this is some invisible work that we wouldn't have had to experience in some time. And I think it's important that we listen to, to just hear other stories. I want to stick on self-esteem. So when you're working with clients or through your studies, how big of a role does self-esteem play as people try to say it's leaving their, their financial neighborhoods or just being seen themselves earlier talked about being seen. So I just want to talk about the impact that self-esteem has as we navigate these money stories. I think money, and this is there again, human behavior is complex, right? Feelings are complex. And I always say that, but I find myself saying it over and over again, but I cannot stress enough how complex we are, particularly, and I'm going to talk about New York city because I think that that's, I mean, that's where I'm located. These are the people, the ecosystem that I'm in. You come to New York and you see the glitz, the glamour. I'm pretty sure I just saw a study recently that said New York is the city with the most billionaires living here in the world. So when you think about it that way, it's beautiful because you can go anywhere on the spectrum of money, right? Like I said, you can do something really inexpensive. You can do something that's super, super expensive. And because of that, you just never know how people are living and what their actual life looks like. And the idea or the image of somebody walking around dressed up, looking fantastic and lead somebody to feel like they are not living as well because they're seeing somebody else who looks, right? The image looks like they are quote unquote living better. And I think a lot of things with marketing and social media also kind of rubs in that same intersection as well. 
that people start to believe that because they don't have the newest iPhone or because they don't have a car or because their apartment isn't close to a park or, you know, we can pick any example that they are less than or that they are doing something wrong or don't know how to quote unquote adult um, (laughs) because they don't have these things. And I think that noise really does weigh people down in terms of how they look at themselves and impact self-esteem where your money has nothing to do with your self-esteem. If you can afford to dress in the designer things and that makes you feel good and great, you should. But if you cannot afford to dress that way or wear designer things, why are we doing it? Like, what is it for? And I think we, we get really lost in that, hoping and wishing that, hey, if I'm seen at this really cool restaurant or if I'm buying the round of drinks for somebody else, that it's going to send a message to them that I am, am not who I am, where it needs to be. I'm a worthy person, whether I can afford the designer clothes or not. I am still beautiful. I'm still worthy. I still have value, whether or not I can afford things. And I think it can get really convoluted in the idea of what it looks like to other people, because there are a lot of people who have tons of money, very wealthy and are very, very miserable. And I'm about happy humans, right? Like I want people to live their best life and feel good about themselves and feel and feel worthy. And if you're doing that when you don't have money, beautiful. And if you're doing that when you have money, equally as beautiful to me. So just really taking the time to pay attention to how you feel about something and why you're doing it, particularly when it comes to money. Asia, that is so well articulated. Your example with New York City This is why we need more mental health practitioners coming into the money world and why financial planners need to come into mental health world is to understand human behavior. Because if we just rewind and go to that scenario as someone's walking around New York City, they see people dressed or doing all these fancy things. If we haven't done the work to pause and to examine our feelings, we're just, oh, I'm not good enough. I'm not, I need to make more money. I'm going to go see a financial planner who is in the ecosystem of making you more money. Uh, That's the way we... We've been trained and we're just going to focus on making money, making money, making more money, reducing your cost without doing the underlying work. And I feel like for a lot of times that fails and it just perpetuates the cycle. And when you said to reduce the noise, then it can increase the self-esteem that really sat well with me. So what would be some practical things that you talk to your clients when they have the New York City noise, so to speak? We all have our own version. How do we investigate that why? why I'm doing it, like you said, to add some more pausing into our lives? Yeah, usually I start off with asking them why they feel like they're doing these things. Like if you spent too much money, right? You went over your clothing budget. Why? Did you need more sweaters? Do you need other things? Like what was going on that you felt like you needed to go shopping for that one thing? Sometimes it's, oh, I... I don't want to be photographed in the same outfit more than once. I follow up with a why. Why not? What does it say about you if you are photographed in the same outfit? Or what is going on with you that you feel like you need to project something else or some image to somebody else? Like, let's dive in past the clothing, past the layer of, oh, I could or I could afford it and really get to the root of that. And usually it does have to do with 
self-esteem and how somebody wants to be perceived by other people. And when you start talking to people about their self-esteem, that level of vulnerability and just recognizing that like, oh, you know what? Like, I'm really not happy with what's going on or I don't like my job as much, but I don't know how to, to change it or I don't know what I would do if I changed it and how can I possibly blow up my life and what is that going to mean for me? I really do a lot of work with my clients around figuring out who is your most authentic self? Who is my most authentic Asia? Like I have to ask myself these questions too. And really taking the time to dive into what makes me feel good and why does it, it make me feel good? So obviously taking a pause, recognizing what the emotion is and why that's coming up and what do you think it says about you when you are kind of just taking the time but vulnerability is very hard and it, it takes a lot of courage and bravery to say, even to your therapist, oh, you know what? I bought that really expensive outfit because I thought it was going to make me feel better. And I, I don't feel good if, I, if I'm just like showing up, quote unquote, regularly in my Gap t-shirt. And that's okay. Listen, if you have something that makes you feel good and you want to get dressed up, yes, yes, yes. I love that. But let's make sure that it's also not wrecking you financially to do that. Yeah, and without taking that time, money just it leads us down directions that perhaps we don't want to go. Since you've transitioned, I feel like it's, it was a transition from specifically mental health to adding conversations around money to now being a financial therapist. What, if anything at all, there could be nothing, but what values, opinions, or beliefs have changed within yourself about money and our relationship with money since you started doing the work now? For people who are trained in mental health, and a lot of times we think about the things that we are <laughs> talking about to our clients. And for me, like I have struggled with all of these things that I'm talking about. I wanted to feel fancy or feel really dressed up. And I liked myself, but I'm like, oh, I like myself better. <laughs> <laughs> when I was going out to beautiful brunches and bottomless mimosas and and things like that, because I was having fun and it felt like I had arrived. Like I'm in New York city and I am going out with my friends and having a great time. And what I personally learned about myself and my own beliefs is that like, you still have value. If you're like hanging out at home and cooking dinner for your friends and they're coming over to chat, I was also a lot younger. So like my idea of socializing has <laughs> quite a bit. I would actually prefer for people to come over to my house and cook dinner and just like chat around the dinner table now. But And you mentioned two kids. Bottomless yes. mimosas might not be so good in the morning on those ones. <laughs> no, no, not at all. My kids wake up at 6.30. Like I want bottomless nothing. Like bottomless cocoa melon is what I'm dealing with right now. So really just taking the time to, for me to remind myself that I... I'm worthy however I show up and my ideas are important and can be shared and talked about and, and just recognizing that dealing with in the past, like my own debt and how I felt about that. Like that was something that I had to kind of move through and do my own work on too. So in this journey, it's not just about the work with the clients, but it's also about the work for me. And I think that's what made this mission so important to me is because I felt like people feel so alone when it comes to talking about money. They do not talk about it and are just feeling horrible by themselves as if they are the only ones who ever had credit card debt. They're the only ones who have student loan debt. They're the only ones who may have like not done the right thing, quote unquote, by their money in the past. 
I just don't want people to feel like that. So for me, it's like, oh, I know a little bit about people (laughs) and I understand human behavior. So I feel pretty comfortable just like, let's talk about this. Let's dive into those emotions and using myself as an example as well, because we've all gone through it in some way, shape or form. It doesn't matter kind of like what your background is. There are times when we've all felt bad about something when it comes to money and life in general, but I just want people to talk about it more frequently. And I don't mind being the catalyst to that conversation in some rooms. (laughs) That's wonderful. I mean, money's the longest relationship that we'll ever have. And we can't, we can't really leave it. Yeah, we need it. We We need it. Mm -hmm. I think the power of even you saying that the money made you feel like you landed there, you made it. It it makes people listening be like, oh, I know what you're talking about on our own version where it's fascinating to me. Money is such a window into, you know, our inner fears and I guess insecurities that if we dive in might be a little cold and dark water down there. But when we, when we embrace it, there's, there's a lot of self-awareness that can come as a financial planner. I could write a book on all the money mistakes that I've made. And I feel like that's a, a lot of us can, but I think too, like to your point, it's just that I wanted to feel good hanging out. Right. Like, and we all should feel good hanging out and being with our friends. It wasn't even about the money. It was more about like, I'm in New York city and I can like live this life which is amazing, but you do and don't need money to do that. Yes, that is true. Out of curiosity, the meaning behind your blog, all the feels, I understand maybe like why you picked that, but really I feel like that was probably a title that you thought long and hard about. Why did you pick that title? Because I really wanted it to feel like it can encompass all of the feelings that you might have. Being able to talk about money, but being able to weave in the mental health aspect, whether it's about money or not, we can talk about self-esteem. I can talk about it all day and take out the money aspect and add something else into it. And I wanted my blog to be able to weave in and out of literally all of the feelings. <laughs> so when it came up, it felt like a good, a good title for me. And then also too, like, in vernacular now, like when people are talking about things, it's very easy for them to say like, oh my God, all the feels, like I have all the feels right now looking at that picture and I want to be able to like talk about those feelings. Like, hey, no, let's name those feelings here. Like we name them. What are all of the feels? So yeah, it felt very fitting. That's good. Cause when I read it, I'm like, huh, this is giving me, giving me permission to feel feelings when I read their blog. So I, I enjoyed the title. Thank you. So your work as a therapist in therapy, you would know way more than me on this, but from what I understand is we go back to look at maybe distorted views or negative conversations that we're having within ourselves. So we're looking at maybe a bit of the deficit side. I want to get your opinion or your perspective of balancing staying in that that realm of looking at the negative self-talk because for myself, I know ignoring those negative feelings and emotions was not mm-hmm. helpful for me. Going in there is nice, but I also know sitting in them is sometimes too long. And I'm curious because you call yourself on your blog an internal optimism. So can you talk about balancing or dancing with going into, if you want to call it the deficit side, I feel like that's not a proper term, but maybe you have a better one, but going into the negative side, what's the benefit of bringing this eternal optimism lens to move us forward? I think for me, it's just that I truly believe that anybody can work to like help themselves feel better. I feel like that's your mom talking. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, you know what? I love that you made that connection and you you might be right. But I, I think that if we spend some time looking at our patterns and sometimes dissecting our behaviors, we are just able to see, and this is very much so like a cognitive behavioral therapy like approach that we're able to see what's working for us and what isn't. So whether that is a thought or a way we react to things, hey, oh, you know what? I did that last week when I was in that uncomfortable situation and and now I'm doing it again and it's not helpful for me. So to me, my eternal optimism is about believing that there's always hope and that believing that people can change. A lot of their you know, there's a lot of questioning about whether or not people can change. And I always said like, I could not be in this business if I thought that people don't change. I would not understand how therapy would work if you didn't truly believe that people can change. So to me, thinking about that optimism and that hope and believing that people can change and taking the step by step to figure out what it is they want, what do they need? And then what are some potential coping skills, action steps, how to pretty much design your life to feel like you can get to your most authentic self. I have a love-hate relationship with people like trying to aim for happiness because I think it can add a lot of pressure as if, oh, I'm happy, nothing bad happens. And that's not the case, right? But to our earlier point, you can hold two feelings at one time. Life can be really hard, but you can still be happy in your life or content in your life or, or feel like you're living your most authentic self. So change, hope, and just be making space for people. Like I said, I cannot describe to you how many people just feel so, so, so alone. And they don't need to because there's definitely somebody who is going through something similar or can sympathize or empathize with what you're going through. And I just want to kind of create a, a space for that to exist. And I think that goes back to your earlier point of wanting to be seen. And I think that's the value of the work that that you bring when you talk about the eternal eternal optimism to to make that differentiation between like that toxic positivity where I think I'm going to be happy, I'm going to be happy. And there's actually a fair bit of research now that if like happiness is our end goal, we actually become less happy because of the pressure. So, but that belief, I, um, who, who said this? Oh yeah. It was Tal Ben Shahir who writes a lot about happiness. He was on our podcast and he talked about hope is you know, hope is so strong. And that's kind of that internal optimism is holding hope. And he said the difference between depression and hope is that there's no hope. So anyhow, let's pretend you are at end of life. It could be anywhere that brings you peace, joy, and to use a word you said, contentment. Maybe it's New York City, maybe not. Somewhere that you're just feeling satisfied with the way things have gone. And you decide to write your one last final blog on all the feels and you decide to write a letter to your children's children about what you learned about having a happy, healthy relationship with money, what would be a theme to that letter? Oh, my word. This is a question. (laughs) Um, I mean, there's so much I want to say. I think around it to me is like, you're going to be okay. Yeah, you're going to be okay. And talking about possibilities, I think, to me would be the theme. Without diving into too much detail, I think that's the best way to you're going to be okay and your possibilities are endless and whatever you think life might look like, you have no idea what just might shift it so quickly. So yeah, you're going to be okay. And, and possibilities I think would definitely be the theme depending upon how old they are when I'm writing this letter. Right. Like, but I'm thinking they're going to be like young adults, maybe 
But yeah, I think I would stick with that because so many people question whether or not they're, they, they are going to be okay and feel like they don't understand what the possibilities are. They can't even, you can't even fathom what they could be. As I'm speaking these words, I'm like, oh my God, yeah, Asia, there's your eternal optimism. There are your patterns that you can do anything <laughs> you want kind of thing and trying like, yeah, I, we are who we are. That's what one of my really good friends says. <laughs> As you're saying that again, I could, I could see the, the gift your mom passed along. You're going to be okay. You can do it. So, well, thank you so much for joining me today. Where can people find you online? resources? Where would you point people to if they want to find out more about yourself? Sure. So I am on Instagram. My handle is Asia, A-J-A-E, therapy. And you can find me at my website. That's where my blog is at asiaevanscounseling.com as well as LinkedIn at Asia Evans L-M-H-C. All right. I will put those in the show notes and if you want to hang out with Asia, I understand she's going to Denver to the Financial Therapy Association's conference in uh, October. Yes, exactly. I'll be there. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. This was a pleasure. My wealth is measured and now I spend my time. But now I write freedom story with every breath inhaled. Money is not the boat of life, it's just the wind in the sea.